The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm very pleased to be joined today again by Ines Stepman, who we had on last month to talk about the leaked draft majority opinion of Samuel Justice Alito that looked as though it was going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And sure enough, today, the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, which is a a very momentous event in American history, I think, however you look at the issue of abortion. There was a lot of shock in America last time we talked. There seems to be, look at my social media feeds, there seems to be a lot of expressions of horror on the left, the political left and centre-left. Do you think people are still surprised and shocked, even though it's been so widely expected? No, I definitely think the leak, to some extent, has has prepared the country for this. We already have been yelling at each other about this issue, so this is just the confirmation. Although, I will note something very important, which is that it means that the court was not intimidated by the political melee into changing its opinion. In fact, the the change here is rather that that Roberts has joined the majority opinion. And there's, there's a couple important differences in this opinion from what was leaked and probably because Roberts joined it. But ultimately, the conclusion is the same, right? We have the overturning of Roe and Casey precedents completely. So, you know, at the end of the day, this is a court that was not intimidated by just the, the sort of protests in the street, but, but attempted assassination and other things that go far beyond the normal political debate or, or discussion. So uh, threats of violence and so forth. So that's, it's a good thing that the court was not intimidated by that. And you mentioned the differences. Could you explain them a little bit, the differences between the draft opinion that was leaked and the actual opinion that's just come out? Well, on, on the fundamentals of the issue, they're quite similar. The, the major, and I'm sure other people will find as they go over it more carefully than we were all kind of skimming very quickly after this opinion was dropped. But the major difference is is a paragraph that was inserted into the previously the Alito opinion, almost certainly, as I say, because Roberts is now the sixth vote on that opinion. And that's that's foreclosing abortion from other substantive due process cases. So, so cases like Lawrence, which found a right to saying that there's a right to privacy that includes, for example, the ability to engage in, in homosexual sex. Like that is something that is a quite recent Supreme Court opinion. And so that's that's Lawrence. There's also a case about birth control called Griswold. All of, all of these line of cases are essentially pulling rights, in my constitutional opinion, are pulling rights out of out of nowhere. Whether I agree with the rights or not is sort of beside the point. I'm perfectly happy that, you know, gay sex is not criminalized in the states. I don't think any state in 2022 would have the slightest, remotest interest in criminalizing relations yeah. between, between gay men. That being said, the law involved is part of a line of cases that expands something called substantive due process, which on its face sounds in a common sense way, sounds uh, contradictory. And, it, and indeed, it, it kind of is. It's, it's pulling rights that the justices think exist, but are not explicitly in the text anywhere. It's provided that like broad emanation and penumbra, right, for the justices to essentially say, 
this right, even though it's never mentioned, is actually in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's been an extraordinarily bad thing for the country and for the courts, right? A Constitution like ours endures exactly because it's quite limited. It leaves almost everything up to the normal political process, the process of, you know, representative democracy, right? We elect representatives on the state and federal level, depending on the issue, they vote on the law we're going to have. And the Constitution essentially exempts certain rights from that process. But when the court gets into the business of pulling these rights essentially out of thin air, it cuts way too much into the political process and the right of Americans to govern themselves on these key political issues. And honestly, I think that that has been very bad for the reputation of the court. It's been bad for American democracy because, as you see, we have not been able, for example, to to play out this issue of abortion in the American political process for the last 50 years. And it, it moves us further into essentially being governed on the one hand by the court, which is appropriately beyond democratic influence, and on the other hand, the administrative state, which is, in my view, inappropriately beyond democratic influence in the sense that bureaucrats are making decisions that elected officials once were. So I think this entire line of cases is is quite pernicious, and, and Justice Thomas has a concurrence saying exactly that, basically. I concur in the opinion, I join the opinion in terms of the conclusion, but I dissent from this paragraph that sort of walls off other substantive due process cases. He says those cases are illegitimate going all the way back to Dred Scott, right? So, and I, I think he's completely right about that, unsurprisingly. You mentioned last time that quite a lot of pro-abortion legal scholars in America, and even I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg agreed that Roe was bad law, it was badly constructed. And as you suggest, bad law does actually matter in the end because it affects it affects the role of the court and it affects the way power in America operates. Do you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, had she been alive today, would have concurred? Presumably not. No, she, she behaved quite differently on the court. As an academic, she wrote that Roe was a weak decision, fundamentally. Um, she actually wanted to enshrine the right to abortion in something called an equality principle. She mm. was trying to read into the Equal Protection Clause and then ultimately wanted the Equal Rights Amendment for women to be added to the Constitution. To And, and you can see in, in states that have had state-level ERAs, Oftentimes you do see abortion cases, or obviously most abortion cases were sort of taken away from the possibility by Roe, but around the edges, for example, funding abortion, you have some states like Connecticut that ruled, their state Supreme Courts ruled that you must fund abortions, the state must fund abortions on the basis of an equality principle, that women and men can't be equal without abortion. So that was more the line of thinking that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was interested in. I have no doubt, though, that she would have voted to preserve Roe um, as second best. And as, as a justice, she frequently affirmed those principles, even though she thought they were they were sort of weak legally. Yes. And so now the issue will, as the ruling says, be returned to America's elected representatives, where quite a lot of people, I'd say, in the middle of this debate, which I think is where you are roughly, think is exactly where it should be. What do you think is going to happen now that this issue is with America's elected representatives? Yeah, I mean, first off, let's just remind everyone of, of what you just said, right? Roe v. Wade, overturning Roe v. Wade does not make abortion illegal in America. It, it returns the question to the states. And actually, the only people who are likely to have their their law substantially changed in a way that they don't support are probably big blue cities and red states, right? Here, I'm thinking about places like Charlotte, North Carolina, where the state legislature is considerably more conservative than the people in, in its largest city. So those are the people who are likely to have, have law, the laws changed in a direction that they, they don't actually like um, because the overall state is, is probably more pro-life than they are. 
Americans mm. overall actually tend pretty consistently in polls tend to be fairly comfortable with abortion, although not celebratory of it through the first trimester. You get a drop-off, pretty substantial drop-off about abortion in the second trimester, and then an overwhelming majority against abortion in the third trimester. I believe it's about 60 and 80% are against abortion in the second or third trimester, respectively. So you actually have what could be termed, depending on which side you're on, a pro-choice or a pro-life majority. Pro-life in the sense that it's considerably more pro-life. The average American voter is considerably more pro-life than the framework that Roe had enshrined, but is not pro-life from conception the way that you might see a couple super red states like go down that road and, and, and criminalize abortion, all abortion from conception. Can you clear up for our listeners, because there's, there, there's some confusion in a lot of the reporting about Roe, because depending on what you read, it was it either sort of protected abortion in the first two trimesters or if you listen to a lot of pro-life voices, they'll say it essentially protected abortion up to birth. Which one is it? So essentially in the third trimester, Roe admitted that the state might have some interest in regulating abortion, but most of those actual regulations were, as a matter of practicality, were struck down. So uh, the, the pro-life side you know, was right to say that it, it essentially made all regulation of abortion impossible, except for some very periphery things. So, you know, that's why you had weird laws starting to be passed, like forcing women to have an ultrasound, for example, before abortion. Like these are, these were attempts to evade or get around this trimester framework in Roe that fundamentally, and Casey, more importantly, that fundamentally made most regulation of abortion, even in the second and third trimester, functionally impossible. We saw one major attempt that was successful at least moderately so, getting around that. And that's the Texas law that actually allowed a private right of action to sue when abortion was taking place, right? Essentially, the idea being to to allow private citizens to sue abortion providers out of business. That one was quite mm. successful, but whether it would have been so without sort of the makeup of the court, I think is a different, a different question. But I mean, functionally, American states have not been uh, able to regulate abortion through all nine months. And and that, as I said, is, is a quite, quite left-wing position comparatively to the position of the American voters. Now, in some states, you might see them go to the right of the position of American voters, which is to say, like, Alabama may criminalize abortion from from conception. That's that's totally possible. Or from, for example, a heartbeat, which is, is six weeks. But ultimately, I think I think this is this is for the good, you will start to see states better reflect the position of their citizens on this important moral and political question. And I, I think it's it's a good thing that we exercise those kinds of atrophied democratic muscles, because increasingly there's more and more of us voting in the sense that the franchise has expanded dramatically in the last, you know, hundred years, but we're voting on fewer and fewer things, right? And abortion is one of the things that was taken out of the political discourse and is now returned to it. And we'll, we'll see what happens with that. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is the same week the Senate passed a fairly significant bill on gun control. And I find it strange how these sort of very almost retro culture war issues seem to bubble up at the same time. It's almost as if they're cosmically linked in some way. Yeah, it is a bit of a, like, it seems like a bit of a throwback to the moral majority, right? When the primary cultural issues in America were guns and abortion. And in Britain, we've got inflation and strikes. It's the same thing. (laughs) So I, I would say, interestingly, those are two now, after today, I would say those are two cultural issues where the right has scored major victories, as opposed to all the other cultural issues you know, we, we've wholly lost, I say we because I'm a cultural conservative, we've wholly lost the educational battle. We've now lost the institutional battles in just about every 
every institution, whether that's public or private, meaning you know government agencies, all the way to Fortune 500 companies. But on guns and now presumably abortion, there there are some real victories for the right to be had, and I suppose that says something about those traditional social issues. I I do think they'll cut interestingly into the current realignment because mm-hmm. I think there are probably quite a few, for example, suburban women who are pro-choice, but nevertheless, for example, are deeply uncomfortable with things like critical race theory and gender ideology in their schools. Mm. And so they'll find themselves sort of split on on these new culture war issues versus the old culture war issues. That being said, again, a lot of those women are going to reside in purple to blue states where the abortion laws are unlikely to be extreme, even if those states are allowed to regulate abortion. And, And in fact, the underlying law here in Mississippi actually only banned abortion after 15 weeks, which is the median position of the American voter. And, and most of Europe. Yes, absolutely. So uh, Europe has, has much more sort of moderate laws on abortion. America was truly an outlier in terms of having as liberal an abortion regime as we had. I, I suppose we still have it since there, there, there are some number of states that have trigger laws, which is to say that as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned, those legislatures have already passed laws restricting abortion usually to something like 15 weeks. From what you're saying, it sounds as though a political compromise should be possible. Perhaps Congress could pass an act that would more broadly reflect. Do you think that will happen? Are the political incentives there? I'm not sure the political incentives are there. I just don't think that anything on the federal level could probably get through the Senate. It has been interesting to watch abortion become, even though it had in some ways faded out from the new culture war, it it still was definitely a stronger and stronger litmus test within the two parties. If you go back to the 1960s and 70s, we had a lot more pro-choice Republicans and a lot more pro-life Democrats. And I'd say around the era of Obamacare, that really, the last of the pro, pro-life pro Democrats was really run out on a rail, right? There was a grand sort of compromise around abortion in, in, in Obamacare. And, and the last of these, these pro-life Democrats were really kind of excised from the party. And to the extent that they remain, they remain very much persona non grata in, in, in the party. So you do have these two very strong sort of partisan alignments over abortion, and for that reason, I, I can't see anything garnering the necessary votes in, in the Senate. I, I personally also kind of think that's a good thing, and I would say the same thing if it, if it were pro-life legislation going through on the national level. I, I truly think that the federalist system is probably not only the thing that's good for the country here to, to actually allow people to pass moral laws that are closer to their own convictions when those governments are closer to home and, and closer to governing their lives. But also, I, I just, I don't think the Constitution actually, there's there's some arguments on the right about how there's a right to life in the 14th Amendment. I actually disagree with those arguments and consequently with the idea that Congress has the power to pass anything other than something related to crossing state lines, right? There are a lot of conservatives, are there not, in America who are nervous and in fact opposed to what they regard as the incrementalist approach of the Federalist Society, which is, you know, perhaps very much responsible for changing the balance of power in the Supreme Court and and at state courts. And there are a lot of pro-lifers who regard the possibility of a political compromise as a sort of acceptance of of the great evil of abortion, are they not? Uh, certainly, yeah. I think this is a victory both, in some sense, for what Ben Dominich called today on Twitter, uh, conservative ink. He's, he's referencing their common common phrase that's used on the right kind of derisively of the conservative, the traditional conservative movement, right? In, mm. in some ways, this is a victory for them and for the new right, because 
the Federalist Society undeniably laid the groundwork. There's a reason that there was a quote unquote list, right? In, in the election of 2016, there was a list for Donald Trump to grab a hold of. And that's because the Federalist Society being fed up with the many, many defections of Republican appointed justices over the years, the Federalist Society did a fantastic job of essentially finding all the way down from law school, finding you know lawyers of conservative convictions, um, channeling them into clerkships, preparing them to be appointed as, as judges and then ultimately as justices, actually putting forward some parameters around what it means to be a, a conservative legal thinker as opposed to just somebody who is a conservative in the political sense, right? So the, the entire resurgence in the 1980s after Ed Meese's speech of originalism as a concept, right? And as a litmus test for, for a conservative or Republican appointed judges, the Federalist Society and the organizations around that are absolutely responsible for that. And, and they, they have the right to take a victory lap today with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. On the other hand, the reason that the composition of the court is what it is, and, and the reason that those Federalist Society judges are sitting on, on the Supreme Court in order to overturn Roe v. Wade is because of Donald Trump, right? Mm. So this is, this is kind of an interesting victory for all pieces of the conservative movement in the sense that the Federalist Society laid the groundwork, but ultimately that groundwork was meaningless without the political victories of the new right and of Donald Trump. Mm. But, I mean, nonetheless, a compromise on abortion could leave a lot of pro-lifers as unhappy as pro-abortionists are, is what I'm driving at, I suppose. Yeah, that, that might be true. But I think that's, again, mitigated by federalism, right? So in very yeah. red states, you will have much more aggressive pro-life laws. In big purple states, even purple-leaning red states, so for example, the trigger, trigger law in Florida, I believe, is 15 weeks, which is not an extreme sort of pro-life position. So I think you're going to see I think you're going to see a shakeout between very red states, purple states, and then blue states obviously will maintain their very permissive abortion regimes. You know, abortion is not going to become one iota more regulated in, in New York state than, than it is currently. So I do think there's some potential for federalism to tone this down. Do I think that this might ultimately be an issue like slavery where no compromise is possible because people feel so strongly morally about each side? I mean, that that's an argument, but I've I've never been... I've never read American history to say that John Brown was responsible for the abolition of slavery. I'll put it that way. Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln was was not of the mentality of of John Brown, an ab, like mm. a true sort of radical abolitionist who was willing even to use violence to get that moral case done. I don't know if abortion raises to the level of slavery in turn. And here I'm not comparing them even morally. I'm just comparing them as an issue in our politics that all politics in America will realign only around this issue and all other issues in our, our, our political discourse will sort of fade into the background, that I can't really see happening. And so for that mm. reason, I think compromise is probably, and a compromise thoroughly mediated by federalism is probably the, the likely and, and probably the only, only way forward on this issue. Do you think it's an issue, as some people are suggesting, where the Democrats are going to shoot themselves in the, in the foot? Because in theory, this could be a, a useful issue for them just in terms of the politics, because it might sort of get the base fired up ahead of the midterms, which are widely expected to be disastrous for the Democrats at the moment. But that they might go so too far because the, the sort of progressivist and rising, increasingly powerful part of the Democratic Party is so militant, militantly pro abortion that they might sort of wink and nod about violence towards abortion clinics towards pro-life groups towards supreme court justices which is very off-putting to sort of mainstream america yeah absolutely they could they could overreach um by praising 
any violence that takes place. It's interesting. I had no idea what was going to happen on this question, but I think we kind of got a preview with the leak, right? Mm. And actually, I was I was kind of surprised how quickly this issue faded back um, into sort of a secondary tier for all but the the most sort of committed partisans of each side. Mm. And, and I think I I wonder if that will be true even after this decision is actually made law, in the sense that there are so many other problems facing the American people right now, both cultural and economic, that I think their supply of outrage on this may be somewhat limited. And I would expect it to be good for the Democratic base, but I think there are a lot of people who may be very much um, pro-choice, but are, for example, suffering a $7 gas at the pump, or who are concerned about cultural issues that are kind of more important. Like if you're, let's say, a a 47-year-old suburban mom who's pro-choice, which issue are you going to sort of vote on? Is it going to be the theoretical right to abortion, which probably in your purple state is not going anywhere? Or are you going to vote on the increasing radicalism in your child's school? So I thought this would actually split the coalitions more than it has. And, and I've been surprised to see it fade relatively quickly after the leak. And I, I mean, that could be just because it was a leak and nobody really knew yet what would come out. But I tend to think that we might see the same process again. That is to say that in like three or four weeks, this will very much be in the background of American politics again. Ines, I think we'll leave it there. But thank you very much for coming on. Please do come on again. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.